A national security state is not what America's founders had in mind. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. For many Americans, the awareness of living in a national security state only came to us after 9-11. The rushed passage of the so-called Patriot Act and the creation of yet another military agency to watch over, some would say, spy on the actions of American citizens, made us all aware of the great overarching power of the perceived need for the intentionally vague imposition of national security into every corner of America. Though it became more visible after 9-11, it actually started 75 years ago, when, after much wrangling in the various branches of the military, President Harry Truman signed the National Security Act into law 75 years ago. A true conservative has to wonder how this exceptionally powerful, centralized, and by its nature secretive superstructure would be viewed by America's founders. I'm sure not favorably. At the time of its creation in the late 1940s, America knew it was systems other than democratic republics which featured this kind of national security state. That wasn't us. No, no. Uh, How abusive has it been? How necessary for actual protection of America's national security has it been effective? Has it affected adversely our treasured and fragile civil liberties uh, that much for over 75 years? Or hasn't it been that bad after all? Uh, so with us today is Rachel Santacero, a Herbert Scoville Jr. Peace Fellow with the National Security Archive, who on this 75th anniversary wrote The Underpinnings of the Modern National Security State. Rachel Santacero, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Bert. I'm really excited to talk with you. Well, I'm, there's so much to learn about this at the <laughs> 75th anniversary. Uh, so uh, she works at the Archive, works on projects related to U.S., Iraq policy, and climate and security by conducting background research, creating chronologies of events, and submitting Freedom of Information Act requests to the federal agencies. <laughs> and Rachel is currently pursuing her M.S. in International Development at Worcester Polytech Institute, where she studies the intersection of climate change and the migration and migration in the Middle East and North Africa, and in her spare time, right. <laughs> now, back in 1941, the U.S. had been attacked, no question about it, Pearl Harbor. The overwhelming sentiment of American citizens up until then had been to, as our founders advised, avoid foreign entanglements. But with the U.S. emerging as a new member of the Global Superpowers Club, the Truman administration was handed questions and opportunities as to next steps in terms of foreign policy and the definition of of what the term national security really meant. What we got, of course, were steps leading inexorably to today's national security state. And our guest, Rachel, says, uh, at that time, 1947, the authors of the act were almost certainly unaware of the wide-ranging and long-lasting implications of the law that they would have during the Cold War and beyond. 
Well, that is the focus of today's discussion. Well, again, uh, thanks for being with us. Germany and Japan finally had been defeated. And as the war ended, America found itself with a massive military establishment whose the focus of the establishment, the enemies, had been obliterated. So now what? Was there, was there a lot of time? How did we... So was it quick that we got into a new perceived global threat? What was that new perceived global threat? And, and did it take very long or were they, was it like they were ready to roll? <laughs> yeah, no, great first question, Bert. So, right, as you mentioned, the country had just been had been attacked at Pearl Harbor. It had seen the rise of Nazism and was just emerging from the turmoil of World War II. Now, this new perceived threat was, of course, Soviet-led communism. And it did not take long by any means to kind of figure out that we needed to bolster our new security apparatus to meet the rising threat. Um, but it was really, you know, the attack on Pearl Harbor, especially that had convinced most Americans that there was this need for fundamental reform. And the war itself had convinced more American political and military leaders that isolation was no longer possible. So there was definitely this shared sentiment amongst Truman and his advisors to revitalize the nation's post-war security apparatus to meet this rising threat of communism. Um, and so Truman and his advisors knew they needed to devise this new structure so as to better coordinate diplomacy, military ops, and intelligence gathering. But it should be noted that in 1946, the military establishment, as you said, wasn't massive exactly, and millions of veterans had been demobilized following the war. And it really only took some more time and more crises like the Korean War before the Truman administration was ready to support major levels of military spending. Oh, interesting, interesting. There was, of course, the, the Truman Doctrine of 1947, which uh, uh, some might see as, as kind of a stepping out there and, and stepping into areas where there could be perceived a, uh, a fight between us and the uh, communists, the, the uh, Soviet Union. Uh, right. But it wasn't, it's interesting that you say it wasn't really until the, uh, the war in Korea, which was what, 1950 to 52, I believe it was. Right. Well, it was more during the Korean War that Truman really started to bolster that military spending. But uh -huh. yeah, there are definitely there are definitely um, strategists and authors and historians that kind of view the Truman Doctrine, especially as the start of the Cold War. Some say it probably started before, some say maybe a little after. Um, but yeah, so it was definitely, you know, post World War II, there was already that rising fear of Soviet led communism. Uh -huh. Yeah. And fear is a Powerful motivator, Lord knows. It's it's uh, we've we've gotten into it, and it, it causes a, a great deal of, of energy and spending. And uh, how did the landmark National Security Act of 1947 address any questions that there might be about America's future global mission? As you say, we hadn't been so uh, globally oriented before uh, the Second World War. So, how did the National Security Act? Uh, address those questions about what our mission was going to be. Right. So the new system outlined in the National Security Act was expected and intended to protect Americans against another Pearl Harbor happening. That was kind of the main goal. Um, its goal was to improve inter-service cooperation between military services, intelligence gathering, and the State Department. 
But it was a very broad and awkward mandate from the start. And it was filled with, you know, a lot of compromises. Uh, and it wasn't until later that it would evolve with new provisions in the 1949 amendments and then beyond as each administration kind of, you know, it evolved under each administration. And in, in World War II, uh, there were many branches of the military. My sense is there was a lot of competition between them. And sometimes I can imagine the, uh, the actual personnel being like, the enemy is, you know, if I'm in the Army, it's the Navy or the Army <laughs> Air Force that's the enemy. There was so competition between. Why was it, was it now a good idea to unify when during the war that had not been the case? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And so up until that point, there was this tradition to kind of treat peace and war as distinct situations. So you had the State Department largely presiding uh -huh. over foreign policy during peacetime and the separate military services. So the Navy and the War, de war Department at that point mm -hmm. took over during wartime. So some strategists felt that World War II had changed all of that. And in their minds, the war had confirmed that separation between the services created inefficiencies. So mm. there were definitely calls for organization reform early on. As you said, though, the military departments were at odds with what that reform should look like. Yeah, I can imagine. There are egos that get involved in government. I know <laughs> it's a, sh a shock to people everywhere. <laughs> Was the intent of the National Security Act just to bring order and address competition between the branches? Or was it maybe a combination? Was there also the purpose to organize a new structure, a new framework for foreign policy making in the post-war years? Did Truman and his administration see an opportunity to give America a leading role in world affairs from that point on? Was that the moment of, of a real change in you know, our direction uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, were we a global... Uh, player from that point on, and did mm -hmm. Truman uh, focus on that in the uh, creation of the NSA? Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, when the when the U.S. emerged from World War II, it definitely was kind of operating as this sole superpower. You know, some argue that right. the Soviet Union at that point was also already a superpower, was getting to that point, but the U.S. was really emerging as this lead player. So during 1945 and 1946, the Truman administration came to believe that the U.S. should play a leading role in world mm -hmm. affairs, and they wanted a governmental structure that would help make that possible. So those were kind of the origins of the NS Act. Uh, interesting. And uh, I, I find it interesting in, in your article, quite thorough article on National Security Archives, Truman, you mentioned that Truman and the military branches were at odds over what the new reform uh, would look like. I wonder if you could tell us about the topics of those debates. Right. So touching again on those egos and those tensions, those are very evident in the debates between the military branches. So from 1944 to 1947, the army really led the campaign for unification as a way to combat those inefficiencies. So those are inefficiencies, you know, in strategic planning and operational command. And Secretary of the Army George Marshall was also convinced that once the war ended, land forces would ultimately suffer the most from budget cuts. Mm. So they, you know, the Army was very much pro-unification from the start. Mm. The, Na the Navy, on the other hand, wanted to preserve its autonomy and was starkly opposed to unification. 
Aside from the fact that it wanted to keep its Air Force intact, the Navy objected to any system that would deprive the Navy secretary a seat in the cabinet, a.k.a. direct access to the president. So, you know, the Navy really felt that unification was going to limit its authority and, you know, cut down on budget. So Secretary of the Navy James Forrestal was also concerned that a military military department funded by a single defense appropriations bill might draw funds away from the Navy. <laughs> um, so you really you really had this tension between the Army and the Navy plans. Um, and then meanwhile, the Air Force was determined to exercise its own independence and was aspiring to become a dominant department. So air power advocates, especially in, during World War II, argued that all you needed for future conflicts was an Air Force. Um, and there's a great document in the posting, Document 3, I believe, that really captures these Air Force post-war ambitions where Army Air Force Brigadier General Frank Armstrong mm. pretty explicitly and in a drunken, fervent speech uh, ultimately made the case that Air Force was going to run the show. Oh, my goodness. Egos and budget cuts. <laughs> So many deci- you know, policy decisions uh, behind the scenes uh, perhaps are, are dictated by such uh, motivating factors. <laughs> My goodness. In, in other countries, in other systems of government, the military is, is not under the command of, the, of civilian authority. That's one of the things we, we value about America is that mm-hmm. uh, they have to work for us. And uh, Douglas MacArthur didn't like that, I believe, back in the, in the Korean War when Truman mm-hmm. uh, uh, took some power to himself. Tell us about the, please, about the Eberstadt Report and its recommendation as to whether or not authority should be in, in the hands of the president, who's the executive, or should there be an advisory body? And, and why was that significant in terms of the direction of U.S. uh, foreign policy and national security uh, policy? So the Eberstadt report of 1945, um, which was commissioned by Secretary of the Navy James Forrestal, transformed the debate about national security reform from a narrow argument between the Army and the Navy to a wide-ranging discussion of post-war institutional architecture. Eberstadt argued that unification you know, it looks good on paper, but he made the point that other countries that had tried unified systems had no civilian control. He also had pretty serious doubts that a single person could run the whole department and thought that a civilian secretary of state would ultimately become a quote unquote puppet. Mm. So Eberstadt argues for a National Security Council to fill the various gaps in coordination. So gaps between foreign and military policy, between Joint Chiefs and the military and civilian agencies, gaps between and within the military services. And, you know, this report also gives Forrestal and Navy allies the ammunition they need to resist pressures for unification. So the proposal was definitely significant, especially regarding the provisions of a National Security Council. But it's interesting that the NSC that was established in 1947 1947 was hardly used in the way that it is now or that it evolved into. And Truman had, you know, little use for the NSC up until the Korean War. Yeah. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about uh, the national security state. We've been living in one for a long time. Whether or not uh, most of us have been aware of it started well before 9-11. Our guest today is Rachel Santacero, who is uh, with the uh, uh, National Security Archive, who's written about this. And right now, it does, it's, it, I don't even, I'm not even sure of the structure of the 
National Security Council. There's the National Security Advisor to the president. How much power is in the hands of the executive? And we just saw uh, a an example of the the power, the military power of the executive, uh, and that's with the uh, recent uh, assassination of. Uh, Zahari, I guess. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that, but, <laughs> but uh, they've been on the hunt for a long time. I have no idea how much of our tax dollars went into hunting this guy down and, and finally uh, killing him. But it was done by the president, and I, I have to believe it was done with the National Security Council, National Security Advisor, and 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 the military. I mean, uh, uh, Rachel, I, I imagine there's some guesswork involved here as to how much the military was involved. I mean, it was a military mm-hmm. operation, and it was right. a successful operation. Any sense? Of, I mean, tell us about the power of of the presidency when it comes to national security questions now, and and how you know is it pretty much strictly the executive that sort of dictates. Right. So, you know, I can't really speak to the events just from, you know, argument or, you know, postings I've seen online already. There's definitely, you know, chatter about the CIA's role. And so, yeah, I think definitely we see today that the executive or just these establishments created from the original National Security Act. So the NSC, the um, Secretary of Defense, the merging of the DOD, um, and then, of course, the creation of the CIA absolutely yes. has an incredibly strong hold over foreign policy issues today. And I think, you know, one of the biggest ways that the national security apparatus has evolved is that it's really kind of, you know, blurred the lines between national interests abroad and national security. So kind of any, at least from what we've seen in the documents and from what we've seen just in conversations amongst these leaders throughout the last couple of decades, um, these foreign policy decisions have been kind of made through the eyes of national security for, you know, the last several decades. And how one defines national security, I, boy, it seems sort of up in the air. I mean, does uh, uh, poking a hornet's nest make (laughs) us more secure? I think the argument could be made that no, it doesn't, Mm -hmm. that it gets more recruits. But it's about uh, alleged national security. And, uh, you know, there's domestic effects as well. But in terms of what the structure is, uh, during World War II, there was the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which was uh, changed. Uh, it became the CIA. And it, I t- I'm not sure about what happened, how much changed from the OSS to the CIA. I mean, the I in CIA is intelligence, intelligence gathering. And I wonder, was it fairly quick? Changing from gathering intelligence to a, new, to a secretive, aggressive, unanswerable, really, foreign policy-making force. What do we know about uh, the effects of uh, the change over to the national security state and, and the role of the CIA? Right. So in 1947, when the CIA was originally established, the provisions um, were kind of vague. There were a lot of ambiguities Mm. in the actual role of the CIA. And, you know, kind of for two years after the NSA Act was passed, um, the role was kind of blurred on, you know, how it should interact with the State Department, how it should operate with the military services. So it wasn't kind of until, you know, 1949, after the amendments and the passing of the 
1945 Central Intelligence Agency Act that the roles of the CIA kind of became more established. And to your point, you know, how the CIA kind of went from intelligence gathering to this newer secretive, you know, unanswerable foreign policy making force. The growth and abuses of the CIA are part of a long and complicated story, but it's not as simple to say as there it's unanswerable. Um, it was mm-hmm. responsible to the president and the NSC staff and the great majority of CIA activities have ultimately been approved by the White House. So new laws made it a statutory requirement that the president personally sign a finding authori- authorizing every covert activity. Uh-huh. Um, but the National Security Archive has collected thousands of documents laying out the history, structure, and landmark of covert operations of the agency. So I definitely encourage any listeners to check out those collections. Um, for example, there's several digital National Security Archive or DNSA collections on the archive site that track the history of the CIA covert operations from Kennedy to Obama, as well as the U.S. intelligence community from 1947 all the way to 9-11. So there's definitely a lot of resources and repositories on the National Security Archives website. I was going to ask about what the National (laughs) Security Archives was and and what it is, and you've explained a, Mm -hmm. a fair amount there. And it's I find it very interesting all the time. And it's tell what is the National Security Archive? It's an independent. It's not part of the government, right? What is the right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the NSA, the other NSA, yeah. <laughs> is, <laughs> is an independent uh, nonprofit organization that is basically this perfect mix of scholarly research and investigative journalism. So it's an online repository for researchers, scholars, librarians, historians. Um, or just anyone to be able to access these troves of declassified and unclassified documents. So a large part of our work is sending Freedom of Information Act requests to federal agencies. And we're just, you know, constantly building these huge projects and collections of unclassified documents related to U.S. foreign policy, national security over the past couple of decades. Oh, good stuff. And we, you know, (laughs) it's it's important to know this this stuff, especially the fact that you know, we do have a national security state, and, and a lot of people, you know, civil libertarians and others have been uh, concerned about the effects on pff, the citizens in the United States, what it means. And, uh, well, maybe we can actually talk about the, the Patriot Act, the so-called Patriot Act. My sense is it, it did emerge from the national security context. What, what, what was the intent of the of the Patriot Act, it came in after 9/11, uh, but I believe it was uh, uh, created prior to 9/11. I, I've heard rumors that that Dick Cheney was involved with that. So, what was the intent of the Patriot Act, and why are civil liberties advocates so critical of it and so concerned about it? What, what's its role in this national security context that we're talking about? Right. So again, I kind of can't speak exactly to, um, you know, how its policies have kind of changed on, you know, policing and especially um, of just media and online literacy. But I can, you know, kind of say that it really does take events like 9-11 as we saw to kind of bring about these conversations of, you know, should there be some kind of reform? So you definitely see that with the Patriot Act, with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, But yeah, I think the Patriot Act absolutely kind of plays into this, this original structure that was created with the National Security Act and just shows how 
you know, the NS Act, as it was originally established in 1947, could never have predicted the creation of bodies like the Patriot Act. Interesting. I, I, that's kind of good to hear about the intent back in the 1940s, because uh, I, I, the so-called Patriot Act, I, I, you know, just, uh, you know, there, there's security. We can, you know, there's this, some quote, I can't remember who, who said it and what the exact words are, but, you know, if you're willing to give up uh, a lot of freedom for a little security, that's, that's not so great because it, it does mm-hmm. affect our freedom as something con- that a lot of people are concerned about. And you write that, quote, the American public understandably was wary of the growth of government intrusion into their daily lives, end of quote. And the president at the time, Truman, shared these concerns. He was not about to be party, as he said, he was not about to be party to the creation of a new American Gestapo. He said he was quite wary of creating an intelligence apparatus that would, in, in uh, his words, trample on the rights of the American people, end of quote from Truman. Good for him. We do have the FBI for domestic intelligence gathering. They go after crime and threats to uh, our internal security. But the CIA was supposed to, I thought, stay out of <laughs> domestic affairs. But in the late 60s, well, it certainly did spy on American citizens, uh, students, actually. Uh, did the CIA become rogue, uh, more rogue, after the National <laughs> Security Act, or was there the intention to do so at the time? And what about this uh, role of the CIA in, in uh, intelligence gathering here at home? I mean, that, would, mm-hmm. that I can't imagine that was the intention, but, but what have you found? So whenever the CIA, you know, went beyond its charter and conducted domestic operations, you know, like like the examples you had mentioned or like investigating alleged ties between anti-Vietnam War movements and international communism, it was because the president, LBJ at the time, had directed it. And, you know, similarly, this was the case in 1971, 1972, when Nixon's advisors asked for technical assistance to the plumbers during Watergate. So it's definitely, you know, it's the original goal of the CIA was not to interfere in domestic issues. It was solely to look at intelligence gathering abroad. But we see in the instances where it has gathered intelligence domestically that it was, you know, it still was re- responsible to the president. <laughs> the president, right. And you're reminding me of, uh, you know, the Watergate thing that the president uh, had, well, felt he had the authority to because we were still at war in Vietnam, uh, and I, I can't, you know, of course, he'd, he'd, Nixon would be loath to use the CIA for political purposes. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, the Watergate, the Watergate break-in, I wonder, did he think that, well, perhaps it's justified because so we can find out if there's, you know, communist uh, uh, Viet Cong infiltration mm-hmm. into the Democratic Party. How, how did, I, I hadn't even thought about the, the lead, you know, this national security state leading to, to Watergate. Your thoughts, mm-hmm. Rachel? Yeah, I mean, again, I think, I think definitely your listeners would be really, it would be great to kind of access some of those online postings and DNSA collections that I'd mentioned on the archive that can really, you know, see the sentiments at the time to what these leaders were talking about. So getting the chance to be able to look through emails, memos about kind of how 
these administrations were looking at security and how they were thinking about it. So, you know, I think it's it's and that's why I think this type of work is great, because you can really see from the documents at the time what they were thinking. Mm. No, they've, I don't think they had a lot of emails at the time. in <laughs> True, true. <laughs> <laughs> but they had phone taps, oh, lots mm-hmm. and lots of phone taps. Boy, that was fun, I guess. <laughs> Under Nixon, a fascinating character still. I mean, he pales in comparison to that orange blob we had in the White House for a long time. But, but the legitimate role of the State Department was noticeably undercut by the president's advisor, Henry Kissinger. I don't know what his title was particularly, but he, was, uh, he had a lot of uh, foreign policy-making power, Henry Kissinger did. As you point out, Truman's Secretary of State, George Marshall, Marshall was quite concerned that an executive branch might, quote, counsel with statutory powers and responsibility would introduce fundamental changes in the entire question of foreign relations. I mean, the State Department is was just, they were, I don't think they had a role when Kissinger was there. And of course, Kissinger eventually took on the title of Secretary of State. It's like, oh, why not? He's doing a job anyway. <laughs> but so was was George Marshall proven right? So like FDR, Nixon, Nixon, you know, the example you brought up first, Nixon wanted to be his own Secretary of State. So Nixon wanted an assistant like Henry Kissinger who would help him accomplish that. And then, you know, regarding, you know, bodies like the NSC specifically, Subsequent presidents have used it a bit like a rented mule as a way to fend off interference and unwanted pressure from state and others. And the Reagan administration, you know, specifically has been the most egregious example with Oliver North, Robert McFarlane, John Poindexter using their positions and flexibility on the NSC staff to carry out the Iran-Contra affair. And this was also with presidential authorization, by the way. So keeping but keeping it mostly secret from everyone else. Yeah, it's it's so easy. We've had so many bizarre things happen since then. The whole <laughs> Iran-Contra affair, uh, that was just uh, to refresh my memory and listeners perhaps too, uh, that was uh, Oliver North, at, tell me if I'm right or wrong, at the direction of, of, of Reagan doing some foreign policy as a rogue uh, and, and trying to uh, get Iran's Money from Iran, I guess, to help support our attempt to overthrow the government of, of Nicaragua. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Can, can you uh, put some clarity to that, please? Yeah, I mean, no, I think you have it. You have it right. Um, I think, in, again, it just kind of goes to show that, especially with the NSC, the National Security Council, each president kind of used it as they saw fit. So I think that's why it's, you know, kind mm. of evolved into this into this, you know, major part of the executive to kind of carry out these larger foreign policy missions. Mm. And I do believe that the founders of this country, uh, I don't think they, I mean, they intended the war making powers to be strictly the role of Congress and not Mm -hmm. the president. Now, these what we're talking about here, uh, violent acts, are they war? That's sort of a open question, I, I guess. But uh, I, I wonder how, you know, how this would fit in or doesn't fit in and how, you know, significantly out of line with the intent of America's founders to keep war-making uh, powers 
uh, role, uh, responsibility strictly to Congress. I mean, they didn't want a king or a dictator to, mm-hmm. to run our uh, uh, foreign policy. And yet, this seems to have happened. Your thoughts on that, Rachel? Right. Well, I think, you know, the Truman Doctrine especially kind of was able to apply freedoms from having to answer to Congress mm. with regard to war making like you're talking about. So I think those things kind of fit together with removing those checks and balances to have Congress approve some of these these uh, issuings of foreign policy. Uh, you know, I, I, I do like what the founders <laughs> intended. <laughs> I, I must say it may not have been as efficient. A dictatorship is the most efficient. Let's face it. <laughs> democracy is far less efficient, but I still like it. And dear listener, for those who may have just tuned in, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about democracy and the effects of the 75-year-old national security state. Our guest has done a bit of research into it, to put it mildly. Uh, her name is Rachel Santacero. She's the Herbert Scoville Jr. Peace Fellow at the National Security Archive. And the, on the National Security Archive, the, there was an article about uh, 75 years of this national security state. Where are we? So is it accurate that presidents since the late 1940s have used the national security apparatus pretty much as they see fit? Has it been an untethered executive which is directing the action? And and that concerns, uh, I would think, a lot of people. So I think, I think, again, that, you know, these bodies established from the National Security Act, you know, again, like we talked about CIA, uh, Secretary of Defense, NSC, they're not operating as these rogue bodies, they really are operating at the uh-huh. discretion of the president. But I definitely think, like you said, I think each president has kind of used them out how, how he sees fit and to kind of the issues and the times that was happening at the at the moment. So whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but yeah, I definitely think the, and perhaps, you know, some scholars argue that the ambiguities originally, originally outlined in the National Security Act have kind of made it, helped make it possible at least to use these bodies as presidents have seen fit. So I wonder if, if it's the case, intended or not by the founders of this country, that the president alone uh, has been the determinant of, of foreign policy. And now he, and it's always been a he so far, uh, has to answer mm-hmm. to, to politics. I mean, there's, there's you know, the, the public uh, awareness of, of what's going on here, and it does matter. But they've, they've had to sell it to the public, I would think. And just the fact that they've done it so long and so well, it kind of sounds like the public in general, if you were to uh, you know, take a poll of Americans, do you approve of mm-hmm. the president having exclusive authority over foreign policy? I wouldn't like it. I, <laughs> I, I, I know that during the, the, the invasion of Cambodia, there was a big mm-hmm. uproar, the War Powers Act. How did that, uh, uh, was that sort of a, uh, a surprise? And was it something that the perhaps the war powers act and the and the national security state enabled nixon to create the uh the invasion of cambodia 
during the Vietnam War, uh, and that uh, perhaps uh, the uh, War Powers Act was sort of, I think it takes a lot to convince the public, let's face mm -hmm. it, but they right. eventually came along and said, hey, this ain't right. Talk about that a little bit, if you would. <laughs> right. Well, well, I can't exactly speak to, you know, the War Powers Act and Nixon's kind of tenure in Cambodia. But I can say to kind of your point about public interpretation of a president's, you know, role over foreign policy. That was a big reason why I wanted to write this piece in the first place. You know, I knew the anniversary, the 75th anniversary was coming up and that felt like a big moment. But just kind of thinking about public perception of foreign policy, you know, I think a lot of people my age don't even know how bodies like the CIA, the NSC, the Secretary of Defense, I don't even think a lot of people my age know how those bodies were originally created or what their original intent was. So I think, again, just kind of to your point about, you know, public perception over the president's role, I think it's really important to do research into these topics to know how it was originally intended and how it's evolved and how specific events have kind of moved the needle over time, whether it's expanded or contracted. And, you know, as we've been talking about, it seems like a lot of these roles have expanded. Yeah, they have. And, and, uh, I don't know if there's something people can do. I always save that for the uh, end of the discussion, <laughs> what people can do about this. And I am, you mentioned your age. I am hopeful. I'm a little older. I'm actually a lot, <laughs> a lot older. Uh, and, and I'm hopeful. I, I get the sense that people your age are interested in mm -hmm. what's going on. I mean, the fact that, you know, the, the U.S. Supreme Court has, has removed a right uh, from mm -hmm. women. I mean, like that's like... That's a really big deal. When I was growing up, the Supreme Court would always expand rights. They didn't take them away. So hopefully people are paying more attention to that, and I think maybe they are. Now, it, again, it started with, with Truman. A lot changed uh, under, mm -hmm. under President Truman, quite a bit. His advisor, Clark Clifford, at the time, I think, was worried that as the CIA was exempted from public scrutiny, uh, the same public scrutiny that was required of other government agencies, that he that he thought it might be a government, in his words, a government within the government. What did he mean? Mm -hmm. what, what, was he prescient on this matter? What did he mean by government within the government? What was he concerned about? Right, right. So that, that's a great question. Um, and in the years following the act, some felt like the practices of covert action became institutionalized and increasingly paramilitary in nature. And Clifford actually reflected on this in his memoir. So it was, you know, it was more after the fact versus prescient that, but he reflected that covert activities had become so numerous and widespread that, in effect, it became a self-sustaining part of American foreign operations. And others like, you know, George Keenan and Sidney Sowers um, mm. had similar feelings and felt like the CIA had wandered away from what it was originally established to be. Mm. And there have been concerns. There have been people who ran for president. Actually, mm -hmm. a guy I was supporting who did not win, Fred Harris, was running in 1976. And this was after a lot of the uh, scandals of the CIA. And I remember being at an event with Fred Harris speaking. Somebody asked him, what would you do with the CIA? And this was after a lot of their, their scandals. He said, I'd abolish it. <laughs> Next question, I was like, 
Okay. <laughs> that, that's interesting. That's pretty straightforward. And that's what, right, com- right. That's what comes to being straightforward. You can't do that. Well, in these 75 years, how is it that the influence of the National Security Council has grown in size and power with each subsequent administration? And I do find that interesting. How prominent have they been in recent administrations? Talk about mm-hmm. the influence uh, of the NSC growing in power uh, as with each administration. That's that's of concern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was a big part of my research. Um, but we've we've seen the NSC staff numbers skyrocket over the years. Right. So what started off as this small presidential staff has expanded to a fully ensconced agency-like organization of hundreds of people. So each president, like you said, would use it in a slightly different way, but each well understood the value of centering decision-making authority more firmly in the White House. Um, so for example, you know, during the, during the 90s, some authors had argued for giving the NSC a lead role in shaping economic policy and the Clinton team added international economic policy to the NSC's mandate and created the National Economic Council, which was expected to work with the NSC on economic security. So that was, you know, not an original provision of the NSC. And then, you know, during the George W. Bush administration, National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice had originally wanted to replicate the NSC structure from the Eisenhower years, but that obviously changed after 9-11 and the NSC staff again grew expansively. And then, you know, under Obama, the NSC continued to grow to something like over, you know, 400 members. So some have argued that because the NSC has become more like an agency over Mm -hmm. the last couple of administrations, it's ultimately become less flexible and less adaptable. And perhaps less answerable to the public. I don't know. Maybe less answerable to Congress. If I don't know if Congress has any interest in in doing something that they're not already doing. But uh, you mentioned economics. Fascinating. I mean, Mm -hmm. foreign policy for the past couple, few hundred years has largely been about economics. Let's Mm -hmm. face it, you know, the the colonial nations, they were in it for the money. And uh, we don't officially, uh, you know, call ourselves a colonial imperialist country now. But interesting, I, I, I... wonder what connection there may or may not be between uh, uh, making economic policy that benefits uh, the U.S. being the, the sole superpower, mm-hmm. along with the, uh, with the uh, uh, spy apparatus, the CIA apparatus, and the national security apparatus. Is there a co-mingling of that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I can't speak exactly to that, but I I do wonder if I do wonder if there is, especially, you know, as this focus on economics ties in with, you know, international development projects abroad. Um, And, you know, as we as we had kind of talked about with the Truman Doctrine of 1947, that that doctrine also kind of paved the way for those international development and globalization goals. So I, I definitely I have to imagine that there's you know, those ties between development, economics, and security and intelligence. Hmm. And one sees Africa now, the Chinese have big tentacles into Africa. They're helping them develop. They have the uh, uh, big uh, 
development projects that they're going on there, and it's in China's interest to help Africa. And apparently Trump uh, called the many nations of Africa something that I'd rather not say on the radio. <laughs> uh, and we haven't been doing that. And, you know, here we have all this military operation, for example, in, in Africa, but not a lot of economic help for them. And I, I just... My, my sense is that, that over the years and over the presidencies that there's been more of a, a reliance on military solutions than the more complicated economic uh, uh, interventions and involvements there. I, I wonder about that if that's and, – and, you know, the people there in Africa, they see – the American military, the people mm -hmm. in Afghanistan and countries like that, they see what the American military is doing. And I don't really think that feeling like you're under attack by a superpower, I don't know, it seems to me it's uh, may not be actually increasing our national security. Now, mm -hmm. I don't know if you can, you've done a lot of research on it, so you must have some opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess my my instinct is, again, to kind of just revert back to the documents that we've been able to see over the years and how these documents can kind of show us how either perceptions abroad or just how, you know, military or leaders and departments like CIA state have kind of felt about these issues over the last couple of decades. So, yeah, I do think there <laughs> there probably has to be some, <laughs> I guess, perceptions abroad. I mean, ultimately, there are perceptions abroad about the U.S. military, but I do wonder how, you know, those kinds of conversations fit into something like the National Security Act today. And if there's a way that we could, you know, look at how the same kind of conversations that were happening then about reform can kind of be built into questions about reform today. Um, so I definitely think history is a good a good way to look at the present moment that we're in. And it gives you clues on what's happening today. Certainly. But the one thing I have learned from history is that we never learn from history. We just don't. <laughs> we just don't. For those who have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a key aspect of democracy, our foreign policy, the national security state, which is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year with the help of our guest, Rachel Santacero, who is a uh, Herbert Scoville Junior Peace Fellow with the National Security Archive, and she's written about the 75th anniversary, where we are, what this gets us. Are we more secure? I, you know, I'd like to be able to travel knowing that, <laughs> you know, I'm an American. I'd like to be able to travel and know that uh, we, that our policies have helped make us more secure. Quite frankly, I'm dubious. Um, but as, as you point out, Many dozens of covert operations from influencing elections to helping overthrow governments and even attempting to assassinate foreign leaders. There have been a lot of those. And you refer to the creation in 2004 by Congress of the Office of Director of National Intelligence, replacing the CIA as overarching intelligence body. I certainly had not heard of that before your article. Uh, tell us about that. Did it work? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that's a big question, Bert. Did it work? Um, and it depends on it depends on what the goal was. So the stated goal was to improve coordination within the intelligence community after 9-11. And um, 
and it had exposed a lot of stove piping of intelligence that the argument goes had historically led to failures to predict or prevent crises, especially relating to terrorism. And so that was the impetus for the 9-11's commission um, for their original recommendation. So some critics say that the creation of the ODNI didn't do as much as it could to improve coordination because, for example, you know, the biggest intelligence agency of all, the NSA, is still under DOD and its head of all and its head is also commander of US Cybercom. So others say it's made decision making less flexible and agile. Uh, great. And I'm thinking about, you know, the various different uh, letters of the the organizations. <laughs> and the, I can't, I'm trying to imagine the structure and the mm -hmm. number of people involved in all these different uh, interconnected, uh, probably sometimes competing agencies mm -hmm. that are part of the national security state. I, I, I oh, just, right. Just just looking at the organizational charts in my research, it's, it's very overwhelming. It's definitely like a... Many, many-legged uh, octopus, but... <laughs> and how, how has it worked? I don't know. Mm -hmm. What was the argument? I found this rather curious. I thought we had all kinds of national security protections in place prior to 9-11. But after 9-11, there was something brand new called the Department of Homeland Security. What mm -hmm. was its role, and in what ways is it affecting the policing of America? So after 9-11, the Bush administration largely followed the recommendations of the U.S. Commission on National Security, which had concluded that, you know, even seven months before the attacks on 9-11, that the U.S. was poorly organized to design and implement a comprehensive strategy to protect the homeland. So DHS and the Homeland Security Council were established to combat future terrorist attacks against the U.S. from abroad, but it also con assumed control over agencies like what is now CBP, uh, FEMA, TSA, Secret Service, yeah. and Coast Guard. <laughs> and, you know, in the last 20 years, it's also played a role not just in counterterrorism, but in natural disasters, pandemics, cyber attacks, white supremacy, and, you know, increased migration and movement of goods across the border. So, you know, even we, we've been talking about the evolution of the NS Act of 75 years, but it's, it's definitely interesting to look at the evolution of DHS in the last 20 years. My goodness, it certainly is. And <laughs> the, the fact that the, the, the Homeland, Department of Homeland Security, uh, I've seen stories and, and evidence that that they take uh, surplus military equipment and give it largely to local police departments. So the, a lot of local police departments have military equipment, like for, you know, in some cases, uh, protecting from the people themselves, protecting the uh, the government from the people themselves. And, and that's, I don't know, kind of concerning some of the uh, mm -hmm. military-grade weapons that have made it into local police departments. I'm, I'm concerned about that and, and what they Yeah, yeah, and may, maybe that's something worth to, worth to FOIA quest for, too, to <laughs> see what's kind of happening. In, in the past 75 years, has the National Security Agency had the effect of consolidating power into the executive branch, away from Congress as our founders intended i mean that's kind of a a, a big question and mm -hmm. the, the overall effect is as you say you know the the charts of the various different agencies do we have is the executive branch been greatly strengthened and 
expanded uh, beyond what uh, America's founders intended. Because of the right, uh, ab- absolutely. So every executive branch component in the act has ballooned in size, and authority in Congress has made it impo- an impossible task of keeping up, even after its heyday in the mid '70s when it passed new laws restricting presidential actions abroad. Um, it created intelligence oversights committees, and it expanded the staff sizes of many other relevant committees. But yeah, I think it's it's definitely absolutely ballooned and become such a huge part of the executive branch. And I would like to think that we, the people, can do something about it. And so here we are in the 2020s, conventional warfare, you know, the old uh, battleships and spending huge amounts of money on these on these uh, big, uh, expensive equipment. It's kind of overshadowed by new threats uh, of attacks through cyber technology that battleships uh, aren't, I don't think they have any power against them. So we've created this structure, uh, the intelligence structure, based on an old way of war. And, and as you say, these factors, the cyber technology threat, has already been inspiring calls for fundamental reorganization today, as they did in 1947. 75 years ago, with so many items before Congress (laughs) and the president, is this challenge, the idea of, you know, addressing the real threat of of cyber attacks that can be done without any kind of, you know, traditional weapons involved, is this getting the attention it it needs, do you think? Again, I think it depends on your perspective and your agenda. There are people who are genuinely concerned about efficiencies and flexibility, but there's always going to be resistance from people who don't see the need for another dramatic upheaval. And of course, you know, entrenched bureaucracies will always respond to threats to their authority. Usually usually it takes an event like 9-11 or another upheaval to convince enough people that it's worth doing. A case that a lot of observers are curious about about is the NSA-U.S. Cybercom dual-hat arrangement like we had talked about before. There's pressure to divide them because their missions are so different, but the current head, General Paul um, Nakasone, argues they're not ready because, speaking of the emergence of cybersecurity, Cybercom doesn't have enough of an institutional foundation to go it alone. So I I Mm. think those, those conversations are happening, but I think there are debates on you know, is there enough of an upheaval right now to make that reform as there was in 1947? Well, probably not. But, you know, as I think about real national security, there's what we've been doing for 75 years, how effective it's been, open for uh, debate. And, you know, I'm wondering, the idea was of our founders that this is a democratic republic. We don't have kings. We don't have dictators. The foreign policy has to serve the interests of our republic. Now, is it doing that? I don't know. There's a lot of arguments for that. But what can, we are not powerless. The, the powers that be like to convince the average person that he or she has no power. Ain't nothing we can do. Forget about it. Just let them run the show. You and I know that's not true. (laughs) But it takes effort. It does take effort. What Mm -hmm. if people are concerned about the the perhaps overreach of the national security state? What what can the average citizen do? Do you think? 
I guess from my perspective, and again, kind of thinking about people my age who aren't as privy to these conversations that were happening, or maybe not as aware of the provisions of these bodies, I think it's really important to do your research and to understand one, like we've been talking about how these bodies in this national security ap- apparatus has evolved. You know, it hasn't always existed how we see it now. Things aren't mm-hmm, always, mm-hmm. you know, things aren't stagnant. Things have really flowed over time. And I, I think it's really important that people understand that evolution process to be able to understand, okay, how did we get to where we are now? So I think I think that's probably the biggest thing I can kind of call on other people to do. I know it's a daunting task and it's, oh, yeah. You know, people say today in today's day, it's harder and harder to do your own research. But I think that's the most important thing that you could do. And it, it takes a lot of time, but I think it's so valuable. And it just gives you that context for understanding these you know, really great global issues that we're facing today. Like you had mentioned, cyber technology, you know, neoclassical imperialism, as we're seeing in Russia's invasion in Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, you know, terrorist threats from al-Qaeda as we've seen this week, ISIS, al-Shabaab. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's just really important to understand how these bodies have created and morphed over time. And it, it is important to learn from history. It really mm-hmm. is. It, it, it works well when we do it. And there is one uh, research place on the internet thingy that I would suggest, the NSA, the National mm-hmm. Security Archives. How can people uh, best get to that? What is its website? Yeah, so the National Security Archive is a great resource for people. It's nsarchive.gwu.edu, so everybody can access it there. We have tons of projects related to U.S. national security, um, projects on Iran-Contra, on nuclear stuff, Russia programs, China, you name it. We have tons of projects there. And then we also have this great repository called the Digital National Security Archive, or DNSA set, and there you can find, you know, over... 100,000 declassified records documenting historic U.S. policy decisions. So I really encourage our listeners to to go check it out and see if there's anything interesting on there. Oh, and I'm sure there is. I suppose it depends on the degree of masochism that one <laughs> right, <laughs> <feels right. laughs> how badly they want to learn about this ugly stuff. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today. This research is very helpful and uh, it's kind of fun to do the research and find out what's really behind it. It gives you some degree of power over it rather than having it be a complete mystery uh, mm-hmm. to us. Thank you. I completely agree. I think it really gives gives you agency in understanding our world today. So I really appreciate chatting with you today, Bert. It was a lot of fun. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bert. Wayne, we ain't talking alone. Who's listening? I don't really know. But you better tell the SIS to keep out of sight. Cause I know they're taking pictures on me ultraviolet light. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, but, but these days, it's all secrecy. No privacy. Shoot first. That's right. Lay low. Bye bye. Right now, somebody.